Prophecies of Christ's birth, ministry, and atonement fill many pages of the Old Testament. Perhaps second only to that are the pages and prophecies regarding the last days, the climactic final chapter before Christ's return. Among many other passages, the Lord promises that in the last days, He will pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. Well, here we are. God is pouring out His Spirit upon all flesh. The question is, what are we willing to do with it? I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. I think the scriptures talk about trumpets a lot just because they're really loud and everyone can hear it when a trumpet goes off. And when we talk about the gospel, we want everyone to hear it. When I hear the word trumpet, I think of a declaration that there's some sort of message that we need to listen to and that it's time to pay attention. I think of the concept of, of shouting from the rooftops, but with an instrument that can be heard everywhere. It's profound, it's clear, and it's celestial. I think the scriptures consistently refer to trumpet because um, of its consistency. Heavenly Father is consistent, and when He's using, the trumpet is a symbol. And so anytime we see or hear of a trumpet, we know based on the consistency that we see in the scriptures that it's time to pay attention. A trumpet in its declarative nature is to say, please listen to the voice from the dust. There's the power of both the declaration and why the scriptures reference it. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being here with us today. The topics for our discussion come from our studies in the books of Hosea and Joel. And the first topic is, blow ye the trumpet in Zion. And the second topic is, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And to help us with our discussion today, we wanna to first welcome one of our scholars, Jennifer Lane. Jennifer, thanks for being here oh, with us today. pleasure, thanks you. Jennifer is an author, a speaker, and received her PhD from Claremont Graduate University. And she was also a professor at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. And our special guest today, seated next to Jennifer, is David Buckner. Elder Buckner, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to be here. Elder David Buckner is in Area 70, currently serving in the Northeast region of the United States. He is an author, a speaker, an educator, and runs a successful business consulting companies in New York City. He and his wife, Jennifer, have five kids, including our amazing set dresser, Matt Buckner. Elder Buckner, so nice to have you with us today. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. So before we jump into our specific topics, I would love just to get some initial thoughts on uh, these books we're gonna study today. These are really, they're not well known, but I think they're powerful. Okay. Hosea teaches us so much about covenant and coming to know the Lord. And then Joel gives us some beautiful insights and the Lord's plans for the latter day and bringing, bringing us back to him. All right, thank you. Elder Buckner. Not very well known, <laughs> but profound in terms of what they say for this day and age. They speak to us. And there's a lot of analogies and applications that I think are really profound. Okay, so let's dive right into our first topic, blow you the trumpet in Zion. Do you mind giving us some background on these chapters and the significance of trumpets? Absolutely. So it's interesting that trumpet actually shows up both in the book of Hosea and also in Joel. And these, these books, even though they're right next to each other in the Old Testament, likely um, were written quite a ways apart. Okay. So the book of Hosea dates back to the 8th century. So 
the fall of the Northern Kingdom, when the Assyrians came, is probably around 722. So it's sometime before that. It's this warning, things are not going well, and sort of speaking to the people in their condition. Uh, people are not as clear with Joel, but a lot of scholars do think that it might be maybe almost 200 years later. So after the Northern Kingdom is scattered, the Southern Kingdom of Judah continues, and eventually they also, the, this case of Babylonians rather than Assyrians, came and took a lot of people into to bondage in captivity in, in Babylon. So people think this may be after the return of, okay. of the Jews. I think we see the trumpet in Hosea um, in the sense of warning. In chapter 8, it's definitely the sense of danger, the war, war is coming, the enemy's coming. So that's the, the message there. In Joel... Um, we see it in chapter two, this phrase, blow ye the trumpet in Zion. Zion here is probably talking about the Lord's people, could also mean Jerusalem, um, sound an alarm. So you see that parallelism in Hebrew, blow ye the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. So you can see that trumpet is, is functioning as an alarm. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord cometh. So in this setting, it's not so much war, but it's a sort of a wake-up call okay. that we have to be accountable. And both of them are called to repent, but just to be prepared. Okay. Heather Buckton, what are your thoughts? I like the declarative part. I like the idea that a trumpet declares. If you think about Moroni, and Moroni is usually seen with a trumpet. Yeah, And right. so the connection all around of declaring. I love the idea that he came in the latter days to declare, and that here in Hosea and in Joel, it's declarative. So for me, the trumpet has this great significance of, of sound and sounding not just an alarm, but also sounding a declaration of what is to come. And in the latter days, that's profound. What do you see the connection is to specifically when we're dealing with a trumpet? I don't want to disparage other instruments. <laughs> <laughs> Might have come out with the violin too. Yeah. You know? But there is something that is profound. We often envision um, angels mm -hmm. with trumpets. And, and we, we see throughout scripture, it's filled with declarations. And for whatever reason, the trumpet declares, it's okay. certain and it's definitive and it's profound. And, and it can be heard everywhere from on top, uh, on top of the mountains to the, to the valleys. And so I just, I just think there's something that says, even if it's by analogy, even if it's by, yeah. by saying, listen to this, this is what screams the truth that will come forward. I would love to hear some examples from the audience on modern day, trumpets as coming from the Lord. Miranda. I think um, recently we've heard President Nelson's words quoted more and more, and his, especially the quote that says, in the coming days, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding power of the Holy Ghost. I feel like we hear that over and over, and I feel like these these quotes are like, it doesn't matter, the circumstances of your lives don't matter as much as the focus of your lives. And I feel like these quotes are becoming little riffs that are being played in the gospel um, melody and, and that they're tr trumpets for mm -hmm. our lives. Miranda, what does it mean to you to hear a prophet make such a powerful declaration? I think it's really bold. You know, I, I love it when the prophet makes statements like that that really stick that really goes straight to your heart um, because I think it, it serves as a testimony to me that he is a prophet mm -hmm. and that the things that the Quorum of the Twelve are doing are really led from God. Um, you can feel it deep in your heart. 
I love that. Uh, Jennifer, would you mind talking to us about this analogy in the book of Hosea of Hosea and his wife, Gomer, and how this can act as a warning voice to all of us today? What's happening in the book of Hosea, I think is a wake up call for the people of the Northern Kingdom to realize you are in a relationship with the Lord and you're not treating it properly because what the Lord does, he tells the prophet Hosea to go and verse two, he says, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms. The language here is to, to marry someone who has basically lived a life of a prostitute and have this relationship with her. And so he does, and they have these three children. You think this is such a strange thing, but the Lord is trying to help Israel understand that the, the covenant relationship that he has with them is like a marriage. And then just what Gomer may have done or then goes on to do and to, to betray um, Hosea later on is just like what the Northern Kingdom is doing. And so Israel needs to wake up and realize that they haven't been faithful, that they are just like Gomer and that the Lord is as patient and loving and forgiving as, as Hosea is in trying to bring back this this unity and connection, we know at this time there were a lot of different gods. And mm-hmm. so it seems very literal. I think that's, that's an ancient thing. But I think in our days, whatever we put our confidence in, that we're slipping out of a relationship with the Lord and we're slipping into a relationship with something else. And the Lord's warning us, when we slip away from him, we are betraying him just as much as being unfaithful to a spouse. Okay. And that, that that's what the book of Hosea is trying to teach is covenant relationships require loyalty. Okay, Elder Buckner, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. You know, simply being baptized or simply having received the priesthood or, or passing the sacrament or whatever it may be, it's not just the act, it's the fidelity of heart. And it's the commitment that is ongoing that doesn't end with the making of a covenant. It's the fulfilling of it. And in these latter days, integrity is one of the greatest casualties that we're experiencing. We're losing the integrity of of the covenants we've made. We're not living with fidelity to our word and and to the ordinances that we engage in. You know, as we look at this analogy, what I find is beautiful is if if we insert ourselves in the place of Gomer and and our Father in heaven and in the place of Hosea. There is this aspect of betrayal, of breaking a covenant. And there is a connection with us as as we look inwardly, there are times when when we we break those those covenants. But the beauty of it is that as in the story, Hosea forgives Gomer. Right. Just as as we're looking to draw comparisons to real life, we expect the same thing. But you don't know? you feel for Hosea? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's visceral. Yeah. And in the same way, don't you feel for the Lord as he sees us? Mm. You know, when we break a covenant, it's not just I missed out, it's the betrayal. Yeah. And I think that, that, that poignant moment where you listen and you look at Hosea and you go, man, what are you putting up with? And in reality, what, what is the Lord putting up with when we do the same? You know, when you hear about betrayal among a marriage, sometimes you're like, how could you forgive somebody who did that to you? And yet we expect the same thing from our Heavenly Father when we are the betrayers. You know, I would love to hear some of your thoughts as we're talking about uh, betraying a covenant. How does it make you feel that as we sometimes betray our covenants, that our Heavenly Father is so willing to forgive us? 
Natalie. One of my favorite lines in the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, is streams of mercy never ceasing. And so when I look at mistakes I make or when I, you know, when I do something wrong or when I have betrayed a covenant, it's really hard for me to um, think that I could be forgiven. I feel like sometimes I'm too far gone or, you know, there's no way back for me. I've, I've gone too far. There's no way that I could be forgiven for this. But when I think back to, you know, streams of mercy never ceasing, when I read through these things, you're never too far gone. You've never messed up too much. You've never gone too away from Heavenly Father to not receive his forgiveness, to not receive his love. And I look at my own kids and I know that no matter what they did, I, mm-hmm. I, would, I will love them. I will be there for them. And they, they'll never go too far off the path for me. They can always come home to me. So when I think that I, that's how I feel about my children, I know that that's how Heavenly Father feels about me too. I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you, Natalie, for sharing that. Recognize we're in this together. And, and it teaches us that no matter what we've done, no matter where we are, no matter how bad it is, he will never betray us. Even if we in our frailties have found ourselves betraying him. Gomer in frailty betrayed. Hosea in strength brought forth the you can do this and you can make this. And that's the way in which we're being taught through this through the story, the Lord is, I'm with you, but you do need to know, you did make choices and it was fierce and painful and betraying. So I love the second half, you know, where it comes back and there's, there's mercy and there's hope and there's joy. And, and what a message that you just want to have made very clear as we talk about just this trumpet blowing this message of redemption and of, that comes through Jesus Christ. You know, that reminds us of this beautiful quote by uh, Marion D. Hanks, where he says, Christ came that men might have life abundant and life eternal. And he declared, he blew it out like a trumpet, that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That message just has to be spread and heard by all, all on the earth so that they can focus on him. And that knowledge, I testify, is the most important treasure one can possess or seek. I'm really excited to continue this discussion from these chapters and footnotes. But wow, what a powerful uh, first topic that we've had. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion. In order to feel the spirit day by day, I try to do things differently every day. Um, can start to feel like the same. So changing little things like reading the scriptures more and just trying to listen for the spirit, you'll be able to feel it. When I feel lost and when I feel like there's kind of darkness surrounding me, one of the basic things I do is listen to primary songs and listen to hymns. I'll get in the car, I'll drive around, my little boys and I will turn on some primary songs and some hymns and it's just such a grounding thing for me. There's so many good nuggets of um, uh, love and reminders that it's all gonna be okay in those songs. So the second topic we're gonna discuss is, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Can you think of a time when that promise has been fulfilled and the Lord has poured his spirit out upon you? Steel. Actually today, I went to the temple for the second time and I did baptisms for the dead. 
And Steele, tell me, what did the spirit feel like when you went into the temple? It felt like when I was out of the temple, there was just not that much spirit. But when I went in, it felt like the air was made out of spirit. <laughs> I love that imagery. Hey, chase that feeling. Remember that feeling you had and make sure you always try to find that feeling wherever you go. Thank you so much for sharing that. Any thoughts on uh, what Still had to say? I, mean, I, I think Still really captured what the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that Christ, part of the redemption is to allow us to come back to his presence. And one of the ways we feel his presence, of course, is in his holy house, in the temple, but also the fact that we can always have his spirit to be with us. That's, that's part of the covenant promise. And we renew that covenant every Sunday when we take the sacrament, that our remembering him, our promising to keep his, his commandments, and our willingness to take his name upon us is also that he can pour out his spirit on us. He, he wants to pour out his spirit upon us, but, but we have to make the choices to allow him to do that, to open up those windows. So we, we keep repeating this word pouring. Is there some significance to the fact that he wants to pour it out on us as opposed to like sprinkle maybe? Like what did we learn from that? I love the idea of, of both the pouring and the asking. We sometimes think that, that um, the Lord will just give us. We don't have to inquire. And yet I even think back to, to Nephi at a time in which he, he had to ponder and then inquire of the Lord and then believe he could receive answers. And then he still had to look to receive those answers. So I love the idea of the necessity to ask. We're promised that if, we, if, if thou shalt ask, thou shalt receive revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge, that thou mayest know the mysteries, the peaceable things, that which bringeth joy and that which bringeth life eternal. This pouring is an abundance waiting for the ask. And I love the idea of pouring waiting for the ask. It still enables us to choose. I love that. You know, we had a question come in from one of our viewers about feeling the spirit because there is a lot more to it than just feeling it. Hi, I'm Dallin McKay. I'm from Thousand Oaks, California. And this week it talked a lot about it being a great and terrible day or a day of darkness and gloominess, which I feel like we see all around us today. Um, but the Lord promises that his spirit would be poured out upon all flesh. So I guess my question is, what can I do today to better prepare my heart and my mind to be less affected by the darkness and the gloominess of this world and more affected by the spirit? Dallin's like I was as a young person. I was always looking at the devastating stuff that was coming. Okay. And yet, Joel, in the very last verse of chapter two, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. And I sometimes wonder if we are so preoccupied with all of the noise that we forget the promises of both peace. Holy Ghost is called the comforter. We can navigate a lot of bad stuff if we have the Holy Ghost to comfort us through that noise. We can navigate not only the challenges of the world, but we can receive the promise of deliverance if we ask. So I, the, everything comes together in the necessity to ask, in the desire to feel the peace and the comfort that comes, and Dallin's point is well taken. We see the noise and the discombobulation and the smokes and the fires and everything else. But in the end, the promise that comes, you will be delivered. 
but it's contingent upon not only our faith, but our willingness to ask. I love that. How do you teach your children to prepare to feel and recognize the Spirit, or how have you yourself been taught to feel and recognize the Spirit? Boston. So in, in my own home and with my family, we have this family motto, and it goes like this. Gallagher's do hard things, put others first, live with gratitude, follow one another, follow Jesus Christ. Remember who you are and the name you bear. And so we say that every night before bed, and it just, like, ties, like, everything to, together in our own lives, like, how we should keep, like, going through everything and just remember back to that. And it just helps me feel so much better, and I can feel the Spirit when I'm saying our family motto. So, Boston, how specifically do you feel the Spirit? I just get this, like, warm comfort inside when I'm, like, listening. When I'm, like, I, all my siblings, like, we'll all say it together at once. And it just makes me feel so good and warm, like, just this really comforting, like, comforting feeling. Man, Boston, your parents are doing something right because that is great. You know, I, even as he was saying that, I got get me chills. I was like, that, that made me feel good. I had this warm feeling as well. In raising children, we sometimes think that the spirit is identified one way or another. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you haven't. I sometimes would think as a young person that there was somebody who was called and set apart to bear their testimony every fa fasting testimony <laughs> Sunday because they'd get up as soon as the bishop and they'd bear their testimony. And quite often, you would see that emotion was real. Mm -hmm. It was profound for them. And I thought, wow, maybe I don't feel the spirit if I don't feel a certain kind of emotion. And I learned later on in my life that the spirit comes to us personally, mm -hmm. uniquely, and individually. And were it not, it could be fabricated. So one way in which I think teaching about the spirit is that it will enlighten your mind and fill your soul with joy. We were taught that from the scriptures. But what does that mean? It's personal, it's specific. So in teaching my children and my own self, I say anytime I'm feeling the spirit, I used to always say to myself, I'm feeling it. I would do that because I wanted to remind myself that it, it was worthy of a pause and a declaration to myself so I wouldn't forget it later on when the adversary wanted me to doubt that I'd felt the spirit. So recognizing it, knowing it's personal to me, and then making sure that I, I articulate it so that I, I declare it and use it going forward, and it's worked. And for my children, I say, you're gonna find your own way. For you, it may be a quiet peace. For others, it may be emotion. For, for feeling of mm -hmm. chills, right? It can be very real, but it is very personal. Thank you. Jennifer, I'm curious, you know, sometimes when we talk about the spirit, um, we get this sense or this reference to this cleansing. Right. And in, in the book of Joel, there's a yeah. verse in here that talks about sanctification. Mm -hmm. uh, do you mind teaching us a little bit about this, this uh, idea of gather yeah. the people, sanctify the congregation? What can we learn from that and the connection to the spirit? Great, I'm so glad you're making this connection. So this is chapter two, verse 16, because the term to sanctify it, it comes from the Latin, which is sanctus, which means holy. Okay. So to sanctify is to make holy. And that is exactly what the gift of the Holy Ghost is for. It's, it's how the, the influence of the atoning sacrifice of Christ is available to us. So when we invite the Holy Ghost, we are, we are becoming more sanctified. But, and so every choice we make to invite the Holy Ghost into our lives, whether it's reading scriptures, praying, attending the temple, everything we do, being faithful to our covenants, being having 
lives of integrity and praying to ask anything we do, everything we do to reach out, to serve, to bless. We are inviting the Spirit to be with us and that process is making us more holy, which prepares us to be back in his presence again. I love that. Elder Buckner, as we talk about sanctifying, what is the responsibility as members of the church to help each other out in that process? Well, one of the things that I think we navigate today is being self-reliant mm -hmm. and being self-isolated. Okay. Self-reliance, we talk about the necessity to be prepared for all things. Mm -hmm but spiritually we need each other. This is a gospel of gathering on both sides of the veil. And so I think that, that one of the things that we need to focus on is what does it mean to be prepared, work out our own salvation, because we each need to, but elevating one another, uniting. You know, President Nelson's message of gathering on both sides of the veil and the covenant path and the importance of being one great whole, whether we called it missionary work and temple work, it's one whole. It's all about gathering on both sides of the veil. We need each other. The promises of Malachi, all of these promises and prophecies are all about doing it together and not doing it independently of each other. We can't do that. That's what the adversary would have us do is divide. And the Lord wants us united as one. So there's, there's a powerful message, prophetic message mm -hmm. in these latter days of needing each other and yet being working out our own salvation. And that's the sanctification part that comes. I love that. You know, as I'm thinking about this, this topic, the promise is that the, the Lord's Spirit will be poured out upon all flesh. Mm -hmm. And do you think sometimes as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we, we wanna just like, oh, that, he's only talking to us. Elder Buckner, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts as you, you're from New York, I'm sure you've been all over the world. How have you seen the Lord literally pour out his Spirit upon all flesh? I sometimes will go to a state conference and I'll say to the stake president, when I'm addressing, I say, so how many, how many members are your stake? <laughs> stake president, well, I think we got 2,565. I said, no, 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 hold on. How many members of your stake? He said, 2,600, no, no, no. How many members of your stake? And confused, mm -hmm. the stake president, well, I said, I didn't ask for baptized members. I asked how many members of your stake? And coming from a metropolis like New York, it's, Oh, my stake has millions. And the more you, you think about all, you'll go into a store and act differently. You'll go to a gas station and act differently when I realize you're part of my stewardship. Now, you may not be a baptized part of my stewardship. I went to a, a, a significant ecclesiastical leader in New York, a cardinal. I said to him, after we'd had some difficult times, I said, I said Cardinal Dolan, you're in my stewardship. What can I do for you? He was like, what? And I think there was a power that talks about the all, mm -hmm. poured out upon all. And we don't have an exclusive, you know, narrow role. We have a significant role to the world. And I, I mean, I live in a city, you know, millions and millions and millions. I work with a mayor that has more responsibility in terms of the number of people than 40 of the United States. Wow. So anything we can do to pour out the Spirit upon all, I think is a profound progression in these latter days. Jennifer, any uh, final thoughts as we wrap up this topic? Yeah, I just think that this really comes back to what the restoration's for, what, what covenants are for, what the Lord wants to do is He wants us to be close to Him. He wants us to ha have His power, His influence, His Spirit, and um, that He is willing to pour that out on us as, we, as we're 
we're faithful to him as we make and keep covenants that that allows him to empower us to do and be what we could never be by ourselves. Thank you both so much for your experiences and for your commentary and for the audience. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. As we've talked about our second topic, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. One of the things that stood out to me in this discussion was viewing everyone as someone in your stewardship or somebody that you could befriend. And Elder Buckner brought up somebody in the gas station or going to the grocery store. And I think if you switch your mindset to that and know that we really are all in this together, it's not just members of the church, that we're all brothers and sisters, that we all matter to Heavenly Father, we'll treat people differently, we'll look at people differently, and our interactions will be able to show that. There were so many things that stood out to me, but the main thing was when they were talking about pouring out the Spirit and redeeming all. Sometimes it's easy for me to be the judge and say, this person does not deserve blessings because they hurt me. But just knowing that God does see the bigger picture, and if I want to be redeemed, I have to allow Him to redeem everyone else as well. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. All right, guys. We've had some really good discussions and great comments from the audience as well, and I'm excited to jump back into to these, uh, these books specifically. Um, Ella Buckner, I'd love to just uh, let you start us out. Where should we go with some of these uh, topics? I don't know. One of the, one of the things that I think is most essential is understanding revelation. Okay. Um, we've had prophets tell us that it's an ongoing restoration, and it's contingent upon revelation. Okay. We reference the fact that President Nelson taught us the importance of making sure that we have pure truth, pure doctrine, and pure revelation. So I love when they reference the prophecies of Joel. Mm-hmm. I love the the construct of being covenant people and aligning with the Savior and receiving that guidance. It's powerful in these latter days. What, uh, why do you think the emphasis on the word pure? Any significance to that? Well, I, I think that we find ourselves um, relative truth. Okay. You know, the world today is saying, find your truth, find your truth. Well, if I'm going to find my truth and you're going to find your truth, and we see all the, the discombobulation mm-hmm. that occurs in the world because of that, we're getting a prophet, seer, and revelator who says, no, 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 there is pure truth. And with that, we need to follow and understand pure doctrine. And with that, we need to receive pure revelation. So I think the emphasis on pure is not some nebulous, secularized way of thinking about, you know what, the world can find their truth. It's not true. Okay, I love that. For me, I think about Hosea, where the idea of of truth is a way of walking. It's a way of being and being in relationship. And it's easy, I think, in our day, just as it was in their day, to slip into self-deception. So we think that we're going through the externals, we're going through the motion, the form, and that that's enough. And I think the prophets are calling us on that and inviting us to step up to a higher, holier way rather than saying, I've checked the boxes, I'm good, and saying, no, no, what what service is, what discipleship is, um, it's there's something deeper, it's something more real, and that's exactly what Joel and Hosea are speaking about it. And Hosea in particular calling these people to repentance who think they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing. And he's saying, you, you don't understand what it is God is, wants from you. It, it doesn't want the external alone. He needs the heart. So you mentioned uh, this idea of ongoing revelation. Can you give us an example of where we see that? If you go back, and it's before my day, 
we used to have this experience in which we would visit with each other called block teaching. Okay. It was a geography on the city map. That elevated or changed to ward teaching, which was an ecclesiastical unit. Then it went to home teaching, which was aligning more purposefully with where that centering of, of teaching, if you will, at the time, to ministering. Now, we were always ministering. But if you think about this ongoing restoration, I sometimes wonder if it's the ongoing revelation that the Lord gives us in our, the time that we're ready. Okay. Because we had to define it by checking a box. And to be fair, as you look at these, these Old Testament prophets, many of them are saying, you're still checking boxes. Right. You're still checking boxes. Mm -hmm. Where is the heart? Hosea's great message of, you're checking the box of, you got married. But in reality, where's the fidelity? Where's the, you didn't, you just made the covenant? Where's the fidelity? Where's the integrity of it? So the heart part suggests that in the latter days, especially, we need to go to what it is the Lord is revealing. And as he reveals, we have an ongoing restoration of the true purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's where the restoration okay. part comes in, I think. And we have this theme in the scriptures about the Israelites and some of the sacrifices that they're offering that are heartless, if you want to call mm -hmm. it that. Going through the motions. Going through the motions. So can you talk about a little bit about their struggles with, with yeah, figuring it out? This, and I think this is a particular, it's a poignant um, phrase here. This, we're in chapter six, verse six. And this is, um, Hosea. so Hosea is speaking to the Northern Kingdom, telling them what I need is not this ephemeral, superficial, fleeting kind of goodness, but I need deep, I'm asking for um, a, a holier, higher way of living. So the language here, I desired mercy and not sacrifice. And so the sacrifices are the external. And the, it's not saying don't make the sacrifices. That's part of the mm -hmm. law of Moses. But saying just don't do the external without having your heart there. I desired mercy, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So you, you see that Hebrew parallelism between to understand what is it that he wants. You see sacrifice and burnt offerings as the external, and then the internal is mercy, or the Hebrew chesed, which is loving kindness, really the, the heart of who God is, his compassion, his mercy, his goodness to us, that God is asking us to develop that quality. And so the parallel to that, the knowledge of God is saying, don't just look religious, become godly. <laughs> Okay. That that go, religion isn't just show, it's not for other people, it's an invitation to walk with God and to, to come to know him as we become like him. And that is, I mean, is a challenge for any of us at any time, but that's part of what the covenant's for. And they're, they're just not appreciating this invitation. And so the next verse is you've transgressed the covenant. You're not keeping the covenant and you're not keeping the covenant. You can't know me. You can't become like me if you're not being faithful to me. And so that's this warning. You see the same thing in 8, um, where he's, this is the warning of the trumpet, that the war is coming, that the Assyrians are going to come and take you and scatter you because they've transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. And I think that may be part of, of why this sort of progression to, it's not about doing your home teaching, visiting teaching every month so that you can report, but it's, the higher, holier way is how do we meet people's needs, and that's the goal, rather than getting external approval, um, and to, to, to move past the external to, to go deeper. And that's the invitation for our day as well as I their day. It. 
I love that. And, and, and I think what it says to us in the latter days, more importantly, is that, you know, my, I used to use the analogy, my dad would say that, you know, um, uh, going to church and sitting in the pews, if you will, doesn't make you a Christian or a follower of Christ any more than sleeping in a garage makes you a car. <laughs> it isn't just about geography. It's about the heart. Mm-hmm. And what I love most about the entire construct of Jose and his experience is it was about the heart. We made a covenant, but the fidelity wasn't there. Even in the pandemic and other times where people will go to the temple, they'll be married and sealed, and then they don't return. Mm-hmm. Or they go and think it's solely for the purpose of going and enjoying a temple session rather than understanding, no, it's actually, you've just opened the door. It's not about physically being there. It's the service that you're actually providing. And I worry that sometimes we check, you know, that box of a lifeline. Yeah. Did I, was I baptized? Did I receive as a young man the priesthood? Did I go on a mission? Did I go and get married? Was it in the temple? And check, check, check. Well, it must be all perfect. This is a great model mm-hmm. of saying, where is your heart? You need the internal as well as the external. Is such an important phrase that Christ himself uses this scripture in speaking to the Pharisees who, who would fall into the same patterns we often do of thinking we've done enough when we've gone through the externals. And so this is Matthew 9, and this is, um, the scene starts in 10, okay. where he's coming to sit with the publicans and the sinners. So the Pharisees are asking in verse 11, why? The disciples, why is your master eating with them? Because I think they're genuinely confused because mm-hmm. they think Jesus is holy, but they're seeing him doing something that doesn't look on the outside like a holy thing. Why are you spending time with these people that are ritually impure, that we don't, we don't want to be in contact with? They're going to make us ritually impure. And Christ then invites him to rethink the idea of holiness. And one thing he says, of course, is that I need to minister to people who are need healing, the, the, the holy not a physician, but they that are sick. But then he says, go and learn what that meaneth. And then he quotes this passage in Hosea. I will have mercy, not sacrifice. And then he says, I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I think being called to, to repent of being superficially righteous is some, a call to repentance we could probably all mm-hmm. hear on a regular basis. <laughs> higher and holier. And, and in the latter days, we're being asked to live that higher and holier law. I love what you said here with relationship to the moment in time that this is just right after Matthew's been called. I know as we look at it as an extraction. And he was a publican. And he was a publican, <laughs> right? And he's so having his friends over. He's having his friends. And here the Savior, from the prophecies that we see in the Old Testament to the actual moment where he said, wait, wait, do you understand as we taught in Hosea and Joel, do you understand that right now we're living this where judgment is coming about the, the checked boxes mm-hmm. rather than the heart? going to the temple. Is it I arrived there or I worshiped there? Was it at a breakfast? Was I there because I was going to get food or was I there because I was having a wonderful experience? It's the same pancake. Yeah, that's right. I love that. You know, and Alma talks about um, having this change of heart. And it's interesting because within these chapters, we, we, there's a theme sometimes in the scriptures of changing and there's some name changes that go here. Can we talk a little bit about that and what that has to do with changing our mindset and changing our heart? It's really striking because the idea of a name and nature are so closely tied in in the ancient world. So here, what we see in Hosea chapter 1 is the very first time 
that these children of Hosea and Gomer are named, they're descriptive of the way Israel is, what Israel's like at that moment, okay. which is departing from the Lord. And so the language here, the name of um, Jezreel in verse 4, means to sow or to scatter, kind of pushing to that idea of the, the, the lost tribes that are going to get scattered. And then in verse 6, the lo ruhamah, um, I will not have mercy, so that they've been separated so far that they're not going to be able to feel the Lord's love anymore. That this warning, this is where you're at, that you're, you're in danger of being scattered, you're, you're losing the mercy and the love. And then this is the most sobering in verse 9, where the third child is said, call his name Lo-Ami, and that means not my people, wow. and I will not be your God. Now, I think this isn't the Lord saying, I don't want to be your God, but this is just descriptive. But what's beautiful, I think, as we move from verse 9 to verse 10, it points to the latter days where part of the gathering of Israel is restoring and bringing back, and this is part of the promise um, that the Lord remembers. If you look in verse 10, Yet shall the number of the children of Israel, it shall be as the sand of the sea. So that is, that's out of Genesis. And Abraham's also promised that in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I think this goes with how covenants can help bring us back. And then you see the very beginning of the next is that the name's being changed. So it's a vision of, of a changed relationship. And then you flip all the way to the end of chapter two. And again, this this. It goes back to this idea of, of reversal, that the Lord is going to be merciful. He says, I will betroth thee unto me forever. I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, in judgment, in loving kindness, in mercy. No matter how we treat him, he is always compassionate. He's patient. He's loving. And that that can work on us. And when we feel his love, even when we don't feel like we deserve it, that it has a transformative power. Change. Change. You know, and, and one of the things we see today by way of a strict kind of application is the adversary's efforts to get us to declare it finished. Mm. I walked into the Aaronic Priesthood commemoration site in Pennsylvania, Harmony, Pennsylvania. And I walked in and I saw a bust of the Savior's head there and I said, I am. I just paused because I knew the title and I understood kind of the, but I paused there for a moment. As a young child, I'd always wanted a direct object. I am what, you know? And yet that declarative I am was, was definitive, it was certain, and it was exalting. So in my head, I think, wow, I wonder if I apply that in my life. How often do I say I am when I'm not? Because I, I am terminates or finishes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I started to think about that. And in the world today, how often do we hear in a secular environment, just say who you are, say definitively, doesn't matter what it may be. It's just, it's the world trying to say, you must define it finished. Hmm. So I went back and I started to think about that and I changed my language rather than, you know, saying I am fat. I would say, I carry too much weight, <laughs> right? You it's change. not a permanent no, condition. No, it's not permanent. Yeah. And so with this here, yeah. you know, the, the, he, he talks about the mm -hmm. change. The change of a name was you are constantly progressing. Mm -hmm. You're developing, you're changing. So I even think the, sometimes the adversary, if, if I were to be bold to say mm -hmm. it, tries to get us to declare it finished. And, and if you think about the Savior's example, it wasn't until the final words on the cross mm -hmm. wow. did he declare it finished. So if he who knew all 
and he who could understand all still never declared his journey finished until those final moments. Why is it the world so desperately causes us or tries to get us to declare things finished or terminal? So now I always ask myself, is it, is it as I go through every I am set sentence, you know, is it certain? Is it definitive? Is it certain? And then the, the key trigger, is it exalting? So I am a son of God, definitive, certain, exalting. I am a father, definitive, certain, exalting. You know, with each of those, you know, we start to recognize what we can declare. And other than that, I'm gonna follow the constant change that he was teaching us needs to take place. The gospel of Jesus Christ allows, not only allows, mandates <laughs> that we engage in the change. There's this beautiful passage thinking about change and, um, and, and how it ties to Christ and trusting Christ and not feeling like we're locked down and we're set. Um, and this is actually in chapter 14, verse 13. Samuel declares to the people, if ye believe on his name, ye will repent of all your sins. And I think that connection of trusting Christ is believing we can change mm -hmm. and trusting we can change and knowing that, that he, he's going to help us change and that, that we, we're not stuck. Because that's what, I, I agree, that that's what Satan wants us to believe, that, that we're fixed, we're finished, we're done, we can't become, but the, the message of the gospel is through Christ, through the atonement, through covenant relationship, through making, keeping covenants, that, that he, can, he can lead us along and help us become what we need to become. And it's not only we're stuck for those who want to change. It's for those who don't believe that the purpose of earth experience is to change. Joseph's, one of his final moments, King Follett discourse, Joseph's discourse, we're not here on earth, I paraphrase, mm -hmm. simply to be obedient and receive happiness. Quid pro quo. We're here on earth to become godlike. There's a profound message in that final declarative, and this was a theology nobody understood at the time. Mm -hmm. So, but it's rooted in this very principle you just taught, which is change. Change didn't come in some Book of Mormon moment or New Testament. This is all the way back to the Old Testament where he was declaring, Hosea, in that mm -hmm. construct, you must change Israel. And not only that, you're given the blessings and opportunity to change, but there's an expectation that you will change. You know, we, we talked about earlier um, about this, this idea of sanctifying the congregation. And, and sometimes we see change after tragedy. Mm. You were in New York, you were serving as a bishop during the tragic events of, of September 11th. Would you mind talking to us a little bit about what sort of change you saw in people because of that? And how did you rally your ward, uh, those within your congregation to help heal and sanctify each other? When, when the uh, disaster was announced on a radio of a taxi that I was riding in, I was on my way to the airport. And I had just dropped my daughter and two children off at, at school. And they said a plane had hit the North Tower and it didn't make any sense to me, a small plane. Everybody that has read anything about this or experienced it themselves thought, oh, plane went off course. Mm -hmm. And then as I turned down Fifth Avenue because they'd started to shut down the bridges and tunnels, I saw the explosion in the second tower. I didn't see the plane, but I came to learn later it was the second plane. It was then I told the taxi driver, I'm going back home, I'm not flying today. 
I then gathered, here's the gathering part, I called my elders quorum president, at least I president. I'd only been a bishop seven months. I said, we need, we need to find everybody. And so you start to reach out and you see where they are. And you see people who have not been, I mean, you got, you got 350 people on your rolls. Guess what? It didn't matter whether I'd ever seen them at church. It mattered that they were in my stewardship. And we were able to find them all. It took three days, but everybody was accounted for. And then to your point, the miracle of that sanctification. That first Sunday after 9-11, we held a service and opened it up to the community. We asked some of these individuals who had incredible talents. They'd been Broadway stars or, or Juilliard music you know, performers. If they would come and participate in our religious service. And everyone came. And there was enormous, to your point, tragedy, enormous unity around a tragedy. And I recognized at that moment in time that the headlights go on during tragedy and it shouldn't be just then. Mm -hmm. But in this moment, there were no sweeter voices heard than those people who had not stepped across the threshold of a church in years who felt that their decisions would never be permitted in a church. And yet they bore their testimony of what they did know, sanctifying, mm -hmm. what they did know in their voices. Even to this day, I have people who participate in music in our area who may not have everything exactly as one would want it, but that's their testimony. And so as you think about this sanctification that occurs, and what it does to us when you do see tragic situations. I think what we need to recognize that it shouldn't take that. I was at a funeral recently where somebody turned to me and said, why is it we only gather at funerals? So that awakening and that awareness, which in each of these scriptures along the way, the prophetic declarations, which we get every six months with the prophet, seer, and revelator, who says, I have been, he said this, President Nelson said this last conference, I've been praying about you. I've been thinking about you constantly. You've been on my mind. And then they went on to teach us about, you know, pure, pure truth, pure doctrine, pure revelation. So that, that's where we start to see in these latter days the application of both the doctrine being taught, the application of the Savior in the New Testament living it, and the application of that ongoing restoration in the latter days. It's all one great whole. It's like what you mentioned earlier. We're, we're ministering how we've, we've moved towards this is the focus. You know, it's not a program. It's not a box you're trying to check. We are ministering. True North. I love it. True North. Thanks for sharing that. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful example of, as we talked about earlier, of the Lord pouring out his spirit upon his people, regardless of, you know, what you believe, what religion you affiliate yourself, if any at all, the Lord just, it's just wants to pour out his, his spirit upon all of us. Yeah. So uh, Jennifer, you have, you know, as we've talked about, it's been so impressive. Elder Buck, I'm sure you feel the same way to, to just see the, the knowledge that you have and the passion that you have. Would you mind just giving us a little bit of insight into uh, what inspired you to want to study the scripture so much and how has that changed your life? For me, the invitation to start reading scriptures regularly was when I was in seminary. And some part of me, and I think it would may have been an external initially, like I want to, to that little red box, I yeah. want to <laughs> mark it every day, but it, it, it started with that. And so I think the external can be a, a starting place, yeah. but 
But what happened is I got through the year and I read every day and it's summer and I didn't stop. And now it's 35 years later and I haven't stopped. Wow. That's, I mean, it wouldn't necessarily have to have led me to, to make a profession of this, but in my particular case, that's the direction I went. But I think that the wow. sort of partaking of the word, fe feasting on the word is, is an invitation that I could certainly extend to everybody because I know there's a reason why every prophet since President Benson has reminded us studying the Book of Mormon every day is that's how we feel the Lord's love. And we, we keep a witness in our own hearts of the reality of the restoration that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. And this is Christ church is on the earth today. The Book of Mormon to me is just such a blessing. And the more I understand the Old Testament, the more I understand the Book of Mormon and vice versa, that, that that's part of the investment. Why I've loved digging in to understand scriptures because there's so much, there's so much life there. Jennifer, I'm confident that there's somebody or many somebody's out there watching and they're going to be inspired and they're going to say, you know what? That's going to be me. So with Buckner's, you're talking about this, this urgency to go and gather. Have you ever felt in your own life that perhaps someone was gathering you in, in some form to, to come to, to be sanctified? There have been moments where you feel alone and isolated. In the world in which we live today, a lot of people feel intense loneliness. And, and it's, I'm not immune to that. Mm -hmm. I was profoundly impacted by Elder Holland when he talked about the fact that he, as a happy person, finds himself sometimes alone. So I do believe that there have been instances in my life where there have been silent angels, if you will. Um, the veil has been thin. And there have been out, an outreach, an arm around, a comfort that comes. And much of it we've experienced even in these last few years with so much discomfort in the world where we're gathering. I've experienced it personally. I know my family has. I know that when my father called me on 9-11, his very first question was, you know, how are you? Have you found your ward members? So there was an intense and keen interest in pulling together and being united. Thank you. Really, thank you both for being here and for just making this such a wonderful experience as we've talked about our two topics for today, blow ye the trumpet in Zion and I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And thank you all for joining us today. We wanna to continue to invite and encourage you to follow through on any prompting or feeling you have received from the Holy Ghost. Thanks again and please join us next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.